Good morning. Welcome to Tombow Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here. I wanted to thank uh, Tom and the other elders. It's always important when we face uh, difficulty to look back to the scripture and to look back to the gospel to find hope and clarity and perspective. So I want to thank Tom for, for providing that this morning. It reminds us And you see this theme running throughout Scripture that just because we're people of faith doesn't mean that despair and depression don't occur. And so it's always important in moments like these to remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Christ. And so the gospel is where we run to hear of the love of God poured out on Jesus Christ uh, at the cross, forgiving us of our sins, giving us hope of eternal life with Him. Um, Today we're starting a new series through the book of Hosea. and basically we did that because I know all of y'all were just jumping to study one of the minor prophets. And so we felt like that would be just the right place to go. Uh, so we'll be going through for about eight weeks the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet in Israel's history uh, to the northern kingdom. Um, and if you're familiar with the prophets, they usually don't have good things to say. Uh, they, they usually say things that the audience rejects or is extremely uncomfortable with. Every now and then a prophet would proclaim God's judgment for sin and people would listen. But for the most part, uh, they would preach and nothing would change. So it's very encouraging for a pastor. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Um, So we're beginning the book of Hosea. And wanted to answer before we jump in, why would we study a book like Hosea? Why would we study the minor prophets um, where it's not real cheery? Uh, There's a lot of God's judgment throughout this book in response to Israel's sin, but we wanted to maybe jump in and give you some ideas. First is that uh, one day, by God's grace, we will run into Hosea in heaven, and the conversation would play out something like this, hi, hi my name is Skeet, hi, I'm Hosea, oh, okay, well, well, Hosea, what'd you do? I was an author. Oh, you wrote a book? Um, did they sell it on Amazon? What, what? Oh, it was in the Bible. Oh, and then for eternity... As we run into Hosea in the grocery store, we're going to be ducking him to avoid an awkward moment and to save you an eternity of awkwardness in heaven uh, with Hosea. We figure we just unpack that book of the Bible today. So when you meet him, you can go, hey, I read that. It was good. Could you sign it for me? And, and, and that's a much better interaction. Uh, the real reason is we believe all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe that all of scripture, every word, every sentence was inspired by God so that we could walk with him, so that we could be used to honor and glorify him, so that we could worship him rightly, so that we could know him as our father. And so we don't shy away from any of scripture because we believe it's all inspired by God, even the difficult passages. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul's describing his ministry to the church at Ephesus, he says in verse 27, look, I have not shrunk back at all to declare the full counsel of God. This is where he says it. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He said, look, everything that was there while I was with you, I gave to you. And so we don't want to be a church that hesitates from that either. Um, We want to bring the the full counsel of God, even the passages that might be challenging, uh, not only to interpret or preach, but also to follow and to hear. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you want to go with me there to 2 Timothy 4, we find Paul's instruction to Timothy about how he is to do his ministry. And this 
is very relevant to what we're looking at today and why we would study Hosea. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His, his appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of seasons to correct and in, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. So Paul's instruction to Timothy as to how to do ministry is to look... Go into the scripture, preach it boldly, even the parts people don't want to hear, because there will come a day, and I think we can all look around and see that, where people are going to flock to those that tell them what they want to hear. It's really not unique to America at this moment in history. It's kind of natural human instinct. Someone tells me something I don't want to hear, and someone over here will tell me something I do want to hear, let's go there. That's generally why the prophets were rejected. It's because they they didn't bring messages that were warm and fuzzy all the time. Usually when God rose up a prophet, it was because the people were sinning and far from God, and he needed to call them back through discipline. And so generally speaking, when a prophet speaks in the Bible, it's not happy news. Which is very ironic when you run across people who claim themselves to be prophets today, they generally will prophesy over people really good stuff. I guess donations increase when you do that, but Hosea hadn't figured that out, and so he just said what God told him. Uh, Coming up again is that Israel, the northern kingdom, is about 200 years old at the time of Hosea's ministry, about the age roughly of America, a little bit younger, and has a lot in common with us. So as we read and we see the struggles of this nation... In the history of it, you're going to see a lot that you're going to look around in our culture, in our country today, and go, wait a minute. That's a lot like us. And so it's going to appear very relevant and very connected to the world that we live in. And then the last thing, probably the biggest reason that we wanted to cover Hosea is this, is that in the book of Hosea, you're going to find two things. You're going to find the people of God to be unfaithful to the covenant. They're going to be unfaithful to me. And what you're going to find is that even in response to their unfaithfulness, God is faithful to His promises. And just to be honest, there's going to be a moment for all of us in our walk with Christ when we're going to need to cling to that truth, that even though we may be unfaithful, God will be faithful to do what He has said He will do. Hosea brings that to the forefront, that God is ultimately faithful. And so it depicts the faithfulness of God, the unfaithfulness of his people. As we begin to roll through Hosea, what you're going to find is that God has Hosea marry a woman who is going to be adulterous and unfaithful. And the imagery that plays out, and we'll jump into this full force next week, is of God loving his people as a husband loves a wife. Or let me say this better, as a husband ought to love a wife and the people being unfaithful over and over again. But the overriding story is not the unfaithfulness of Israel, but the faithfulness and steadfastness of God. I told you that that they look a lot like America. So maybe if we can run through about 2,000 years of human history from uh, roughly Abraham to Hosea, this, this might be helpful. So 
We, we've heard the story of Genesis where God creates the world. It's a beautiful garden. Everything's great. And the mandate is to the man and to woman to take the wilderness that surrounds the garden and to begin to tame it and subdue it to the glory of God, doing it in such a way that, that God is honored as they rightly reflect His image. They're to populate the earth with children that would be godly offspring, bearing the image of God, rightly responding to Him in worship. So they would enjoy the presence of God and God would enjoy the praises of His people. The problem is that doesn't last very long and sin enters into the picture and taints the whole thing. And so what lays out from Genesis 3 with the fall through to Revelation at the very end is this drama of God's redemption, of Him taking what had been wrecked and damaged by sin, stepping into human history graciously and lovingly to draw people to Himself to ultimately end in Revelation 22, not with the garden where He is worshipped, but with the great city where he is worshipped. And so in the midst of that, God begins to step in and he begins to call people to himself to follow him so that this plan of redemption begins to take, take hold in creation. And it really kicks up when he chooses a guy named Abraham in Genesis 12. He goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, you're going to have offspring and your children will be like the stars of the sky. I'm going to make a great nation from your family. The problem is, Abraham's at this time about 75 years old and doesn't have any children. But God says, I'm going to do this. You're going to be father of a great nation. And here's the deal. I'm going to bless your children, this nation that comes from you, so that they can be a blessing to the entire world. So God calls Abraham, but things don't play out. And it takes a while for Abraham to even have this son. Eventually he does. Abraham has Isaac, and then Isaac, Jacob. And now by the time Jacob's kids are old enough to be young adults, the whole lineage is threatened because this great famine has come through the whole region. And they're starving. So they go to Egypt to get food. And what they find there is their brother Joseph, who they had sold into slavery, is now the second in command in Egypt. He brings them into Egypt. There's forgiveness and reconciliation. He provides food. They get a place for all of the people to stay. And the Israelites prosper there in Egypt and things are good. And they have lots and lots of children. I heard one commentator put this. He said basically every Israelite family was a TLC show. Um, there was like 15, 16 kids. They just kept having children. Eventually a new king, a new pharaoh rises up in Egypt who didn't know Joseph or his family. And he looks around and he sees how the Israelites prosper and he begins to be afraid that if they continue to prosper the way they are, they will eventually overtake us and kick us out of our own country. And so they begin to put the Israelite people in slave labor. They begin to kill their children systematically. And the people begin crying out to God in misery. And over 400 years or so of time in Egypt, God eventually sends Moses to pull them out of Egypt and to go to the promised land. And there's great rejoicing until we get to the desert. God takes them to the promised land. They have the opportunity to go in and they're afraid so they don't. And for 40 years, God has this generation who had rejected him wander around the wilderness until all the adult men, save Joshua and Caleb, die. And then, under Joshua and Caleb, this next generation moves into the land. They take Jericho, the walls come tumbling down, all of those fun stories. They begin to experience some victory over the tribes there. But it's constant fighting. And they never really drive them out. 
And the more time goes on, the less the people remember the promises of God and they begin to fall away. And so as they would, they would kind of eke into other worshiping other gods and sinfulness, God would bring another nation on them to judge them, to bring them back, to oppress them until they cried out to him. And then he would bring up another deliverer over and over again. The cycle goes on in judges and eventually the people cry out, God, you know, the other nations have a king. Give us a king. So God relents and he says, I would have been your king, but since you need one, I'm going to give you one. And he sends him Saul. And Saul looks like what a king should look like. He's a warrior. He's about a foot taller than the other men. Uh, in the room with men, he's the guy that everyone looks to for leadership. But not, not before long, Saul's a huge disappointment. And so God takes a curveball and he goes and chooses another king. And he picks a guy named David. Now, David's a band kid. He plays the harp, but he'll also knock your teeth in. We used to pick on band kids. No offense, I don't know, I was wrong. There, there were, you could always tell a kid that was in PE and a kid that was in athletics just off the way he walked. I mean, five minutes watching a kid walk. I go to the high school right now, I can tell you whether he's in athletics or PE. Uh, David it throws the categories out the window. He writes poetry, but he's a warrior. And so God chooses David. And David, the great story, right? He goes there to uh, where the Israelite armies have gathered. They're warring with the Philistines. And this great Philistine giant is there and he's rebuking the armies of God. And this kid, David, goes, you guys hear this? You don't let him talk that way about the armies of the living God? He said, give me a couple rocks. I'll go handle this guy. And what he tells me is, look, I killed the lion and the bear with God's help. I'll take this dog too. David eventually becomes king over a long period of battle between the household of Saul and his household. He eventually becomes king, and he's a great warrior, and he's got these mighty men that are like comic book heroes. And you read the story, and it becomes apparent under David's reign that they're finally going to drive out the other tribes that had lived there and take possession of the promised land. And David, make no mistake about it, David is a man after God's own heart, but he's got some massive character flaws. David committed adultery. He, the woman got pregnant and, and he had the woman's husband killed. Massive character flaws. But even in the midst of that sin, he, he would desire to worship God. And so one of the things he wants to do is for, for God no longer to be worshipped in a tent, but to have a permanent home in the temple. And so David says, God, I'd like to build this. And God says, no, there's too much bloodshed on your hand. One of your sons will do it. So David takes that, he takes it well, he makes all the preparations to build the temple. His son Solomon becomes the king, builds the temple, it's glorious, and God gives Solomon wisdom. And for a moment, Genesis 12 begins to play out. After about a thousand years of this thing not playing out well at all, after things going very badly... You begin to see Genesis 12 happen where they're worshiping God and people are coming because they see God's blessing on them. They see God's wisdom applied in the way that people live. And the temple becomes this house of prayer for the nations. And they enter in this golden age, but even, even in Solomon's life, you can begin to see storms on the horizon because in Ecclesiastes 2, he pretty much says, I hate everything I've ever done because I'm going to leave it to my kid who's pretty much a moron. Read Ecclesiastes 2. So I'm going to give it to this kid. Who knows if he's wise or a fool? I despise what I've done. 
Because I'm going to leave this empire to this kid who's going to foul it up. And Solomon was pretty right. And so this kind of moment where Genesis 12, where the promise begins to play out, lasts for just a little while. Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king at his death. And he stands up before the people and said, If you thought my father taxed you, I'll tax you. If you thought my father wielded an iron fist, I'll show you an iron fist. And immediately a civil war happens. And two things occur. Jeroboam, who was one of Solomon's aides, comes back from Egypt where he had been in hiding. And he leads a revolt. He takes 12 tribes up to the north, and that's the nation of Israel. And then Rehoboam rules over two tribes in the south, and that's Judah. Now Jerusalem and the temple are in the south in Judah. And so King Jeroboam, one of the first orders of business for him is to to put up a new place to worship so that people don't constantly go down to Jerusalem to worship. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll look at verse 25. It says, this is what Jeroboam does when he takes over. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will not now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up and offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves and he said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other at Dan. And this thing became a sin and the people went even as far as Dan to worship there. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instructed a festival on the 15th day in the 8th of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel according to the sacrifice to sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests and high priests he had made. You see, immediately what Jeroboam does, he says, look, if they go back to Jerusalem to worship God the way he's instructed us to, they'll find themselves over time wanting to worship there, wanting to be there and wanting Rehoboam to be their king. So the answer is to create some idols And to lie to the people and say, these calves are the ones who brought you up out of Egypt. And just a few days into the existence of the northern kingdom, idol worship enters in and the people are straying from God. Things don't get better from there. Things begin to, to spiral down the tube in terms of the purity of the people and their commitment to God and their worship of Him. Idol worship becomes rampant. You're going to see that throughout the book of Hosea. So do all sorts of other sins that come with it. But even in the midst of that, God blesses them. And where Hosea enters into the picture is 12 kings later, a guy named Jeroboam II, no relation, uh, is king. They've been very prosperous. They've had a lot of treaties. They've made a lot of money. Uh, Assyria, who had been really aggressive in previous years, had kind of moved back and stopped their military conflicts so that they could handle business at home. 
And Israel had contracts and trade agreements and all these things with Israel and Egypt. And they made a lot of money and things were good. But things were starting to go south. The tribute that they would have to pay to Assyria to do trade with them was starting to increase. And they were starting to see poverty break through this veneer of prosperity and wealth. This is where I would say they're a lot like us. A few things. One is there is this appearance of worship, this appearance outwardly of religiosity that is devoid of true faith. Look with me in Hosea to chapter 8. Verse 11. It says, though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become their altars for sinning. Look at this. They're building altars to offer sin offerings, which is something that the Bible in Leviticus tells them to do. But they do it in such a way that that they're actually sinning in their religiosity. So they've taken something that's kind of a form of what God had had ordained. It looks somewhat similar, but it's tainted and twisted in such a way that it no longer honors God. In fact, it displeases Him. And God says, your place that you offer sin offerings aren't covering your sin. You're actually adding to it. In Hosea chapter 9, we see this same theme repeated in verse 7 and 8. It says, the days of punishment are coming, the days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this, because your sins are so many and your hostility so great, the prophet is considered a fool, the inspired man a maniac. The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. So he says, look at this, things are so bad that the man I have sent to speak on my behalf, you consider crazy. Someone stands up in a public forum, proclaims, thus says the Lord from the scriptures, and heads turn, and they're ridiculous. I mean, that's crazy. Who's backwards enough to believe the Bible, to believe things like we shouldn't kill children in the womb? That's crazy and radical. That you can't just do whatever you want to do sexually. That's crazy. And you stand up in our communities today and you do something like Hosea did, even even not angrily, just in a conversation with someone, and watch the treatment if you're not treated as if you're crazy. All the while, we're allegedly a Christian country, right? People go to church on Sundays. Easter was packed. Everybody had a great service last week on Easter. Droves and droves of Americans flooded to church on Easter. And then you look around and you go, there's a form of godliness, but it's a shell that's completely hollow and devoid of true faith. And before we look out there and say, yeah, that, that's true, we probably ought to check here. Not your neighbors, not looking next to you and go, you know, that guy does show up, but throughout the week, I don't know. What about us? I mean, it's very easy, especially here in the Bible Belt, to fall into this pattern of you go to church because that's what you do, because you're a respectable member of the community, because you want to raise your kids well. But you don't worship God. You don't honor His Word by obeying it. You, you might read it. You might listen to it. But it's devoid of true faith. So they're a lot like us in this respect. We also see a love of money and prosperity 
over other things. The scriptures are going to line out pretty extensively the idol worship of Israel. And most of it is to what they would call fertility gods. Now, when we say fertility gods, we might think of infertility and having babies, and that's a part of it. The bigger picture of a fertility god in an agricultural world is about your crops being strong. Your, your flocks being strong and reproducing. So people would worship a fertility god. Honestly, that's the god of money. Because we're all farmers and, and sheep herders, and so we need fertility for our crops and for our flocks so that we can have wealth. And the people go into worshiping other gods because they believe that will hedge their bets and give them the money that they wanted. There's also rampant and accepted sexual sin and promiscuity. Hosea chapter 4. Verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. So, I mean, we look around and we go, they are a lot like us. The world that they lived in is a lot like the world that we lived in. There's the appearance of godliness, the appearance of worship, but behind that empty shell there is greed and lust and all sorts of sins. So Hosea is very relevant to us. But in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this rampant sin, we come to Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, and we begin the book, and we find something amazing. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Barry, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel. I want to stop there. What's amazing about that? Did you see that? In the midst of this rampant sinfulness, opposition from God, running from God, enmity with God, the word of the Lord came to the people. God spoke. In the midst of all of that, when God could have pronounced judgment, brought firebolts upon them, and utterly destroyed every living thing, He would have been righteous to have done it. What, what does He do? He speaks. We take for granted, I think, because we maybe grew up around religious documents, we've grown up around the Bible, that God spoke. But this is actually probably the most controversial truth in faith, in the walk of Christianity, as we interact with those who don't believe, is that we believe that God spoke through the prophets recorded in the Scripture. And then when God speaks, it's authoritative. So when God says something, our response ought to, say, ought to be, yes. And the world drastically disagrees with us. Even those that would claim the name of Christ at times drastically disagree with us if we say, we believe that the Lord spoke through the prophets recorded in the Scripture. But God speaks. And when He does, it's always an act of His grace. Because God needs not intervene to do anything on our behalf. God could judge us without any intervention, but when God speaks, it's always to draw, him, to draw us near to Him. 
So Hosea 1.1 tells us that God spoke, revealing Himself so that we could rightly know Him, so that we could understand sin, so that we could repent and turn to Him, so that we could believe. Because the Scriptures say when God speaks, when God reveals Himself, He brings life. A lot of y'all may know Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. It's often misused. But in Proverbs 29, 18, the scriptures say, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Most people will translate that or will give you the King James Version because it says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. And then they'll talk about some kind of vision statement that they're going to make and, and act like that's mentioning that. Properly translated, it's no revelation. Where there's no word from God, the people cast off restraint. The people run from Him. The people behave however they want. You see that play out in Israel's history. It would say things like, there was no king, and so the people did whatever pleased them in their own eyes. Proverbs would also tell us there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. When we don't hear from the Lord, when we're not confronted with Him speaking, sin enters in rapidly and brings destruction and death. And so the opposite is true. If the absence of God's revelation is that we all waste away on a path to destruction, God's revelation, God's speaking is an act of grace to draw us to Him so that we can experience good things from His hand. And so God speaks and God begins to reveal Himself, who He is, the sinfulness of our hearts and our need for forgiveness. And God speaks to the people of Israel. He doesn't just speak generically. He speaks to a people. And I want to be clear, as we read this, we don't want to just recognize some similarities between us and them and then apply it directly because that's not really legitimate interpretation. But we do want to see the connectedness and we want to interpret it recognizing that we have a lot of things similar to this country. But God speaking to that nation first and foremost, and then to us secondarily so that we can learn from it because it reveals who He is. Now, God spoke to them and we just described who they were. God doesn't speak to those that deserve to be spoken to. God doesn't demonstrate grace to those that are good so that they can be better. God demonstrates grace and reveals Himself and shows Himself to people that are messed up and wretched and run from Him so that they can know Him. I mean, how else would we understand our sin, and how else would we understand righteousness? In Psalm 119, if you'll turn there, we'll find something very interesting in verse 9 about God's Word. Look at verse 9. It says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your Word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands, for I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. According to the psalmist, according to this scripture, when God reveals his word to us, it's what keeps us pure. It's what keeps us on the right path. It's what reveals to us our sin. It's what reveals to us God's plan and God's expectation. And so God speaks, and He speaks to these people that were in desperate need because they needed to be confronted with their sin. And the amazing thing He does is He speaks through a guy named Hosea. And just about all we know about Hosea is that he's Hosea, the son of Beeri. 
That's it. At the same time, in the northern kingdom, there's a prophet named Amos. And all we know about Amos is he was a farmer. These are not exceptional men from noble bloodlines, raised in expensive homes, going to nice schools. These are average, everyday guys. More than that, Jose is a guy that, uh, to be honest, as we go through our selection of leadership, he doesn't pass the background check. Hosea 1-2 says that when God spoke to him, he told him to go marry an adulterous woman. And so, picture this, while Hosea is the prophet over Israel, he's got a wife who is a prostitute. Now, you bring that into our evaluation to be an elder or a deacon, and we're going to say, bro, stay home, work with your family. And we should. But when God chose to speak... To a people who were broken, he takes a man who is broken and speaks to them. And he speaks through Hosea. And this should be encouraging to all of us to look around and recognize that God's grace comes through and to everyday people who are absolutely wrecked by sin. And I can look at myself and go, that's about me. So if God in the past over and over again took broken men, broken women, and used them, and was gracious to them, then I would believe that today God would take every day broken men, broken women, be good to them, and gracious to them. You see this trend run through the Scriptures. There's only about four guys short of Jesus in the Bible. I would even let watch my kids. Nehemiah, there's nothing bad about him, and the four kids from the fiery furnace, and that's it. Nobody else gets to come over and babysit, except Jesus. And those, I mean, Paul, he, you know, he killed somebody. He was a part of it. He ran around threatening Christians. And Peter will slice your ear off if you make him angry. I mean, only about a few guys. And so we look at that, and that's encouraging. To say God speaks, and God's gracious, and God's good. And He's good and gracious to and through absolutely messed up people. And He speaks to us. He speaks to us through the ministry of the prophets that's recorded in God's Word. Through In His grace, He preserved for us so that we would have it today to show us our need for Him, how to walk with Him, how to follow and trust in His Son Jesus and experience grace. He speaks to us as the Holy Spirit begins to illuminate the words of Scripture to show us what we ought to do. You ever have that feeling where where you're searching through the Scriptures and it doesn't make any sense and all of a sudden as you pray through it, as you seek counsel, immediately becomes clear and you understand it? Or that moment when the Holy Spirit convicts you that, that something you're doing is sinful and you would have never thought of that before. And now you just can't do it. You, you used to watch this TV show that probably in the world's perspective isn't bad and then you're just watching it one day and you go, man, I can't watch this anymore. The Holy Spirit begins kind of moving in our hearts and shaping it as the Scriptures are illuminated. So we believe that God spoke and God speaks to us. As we come to a close, I want to show you the pinnacle of God speaking. In Hebrews chapter 1. When God speaks, it's amazing. Hebrews 1 chapter 1 verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. In the past, it says God spoke through the prophets in various ways. Prophets would have differing experiences. Some would have a vision. Others would just, under the Holy Spirit's direction, write what God had said. Some would walk into kind of the city square and be proclaiming kind of directly what God was telling them. It happened differently. So he says in various ways, in different times, God spoke through the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken through his Son. And this is what's amazing to me. He says the Son of God, who through whom he created the world, who is the exact representation of his being. Now, this is why it is so important that Jesus is this word of God, that God has spoken through Jesus. Because when I read the scriptures, it's sometimes difficult for me to translate or understand what I should do. It's sometimes easy for me to get confused there and say, I I don't know. And I've committed a pretty substantial chunk of my life to studying and understanding it. And even then, I'm going to books, I'm praying, I'm asking other people because at times it doesn't make sense. And I'm pretty sure we can all relate to that. We open the Bible and go, what does God want me to do with this? How should we live now? And, And so sometimes the written word is very difficult for us to understand. It doesn't mean we walk away from it. As we press in and we ask God to communicate His Word to us, to illuminate it through the Holy Spirit, and we dig in and we study the Bible with others, but sometimes it's hard. And so God has spoken in these last days through His Son, who is the perfect representation of His being. So while sometimes I struggle with the written Word, with understanding uh, the, the letters of Paul, because even Peter said they were difficult to understand, but when I look at Jesus, things get a little clearer. And that's not the full extent of what that means, but I want you to, to, to sit on that for a minute, that, that Jesus is the exact representation of God. That, that if Jesus is loving, God is loving. If Jesus confronts sin, God confronts sin. If Jesus has power over sickness and Satan, God the Father has power over sickness and Satan. Whatever you could say to be true of Jesus is true of God in terms of his attributes and his nature. So we look at Jesus and all of a sudden it begins to become clearer and we begin to understand how God wants us to live, who God is, how we relate to him in faith. But when God speaks, it's always out of a gracious heart to draw us near. Even in Hosea, when we're going to find God proclaiming his judgment on Israel, it's never because he wants to destroy them. It's because he wants them to repent and experience his goodness. And so I would say this as we wrap up, that we believe wholeheartedly that God has spoken through the scriptures, through his prophets and apostles, and that he has spoken through his son Jesus. And the scriptures in Hebrews 1 tell us that that after Jesus has made purification for sins, and I want to unpack what that means. It doesn't just mean that he performed some ritual like a priest would have. It means that he actually was the sacrifice that paid for our sins. So that when Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on him, and that through Jesus' shed blood, we are cleansed of sin. Not only forgiven so that God allows us into heaven, but cleansed so that the guilt and shame that once 
controlled us is no longer there. And you see this play out when you talk to people that are Christians. And in knowing them for about five minutes, they tell you their deepest, darkest secret. Because they're not ashamed of it anymore because it doesn't define them. So you're like having dinner with someone and they say, you know, I cheated on my wife once. And you're like, I don't even know you. And he doesn't even stop eating. He's like, but God redeemed us of that, and this is what's happened. And and you see, wow, this guilt and shame through God's redemption is removed. And now it's simply a story of his grace. And so Jesus makes purification for sin by taking the punishment that we deserve and then by cleansing us. And our response to, to experience that is a simple one of faith, to trust in him. To believe that he's the son of God who rose again. And at the moment that we first do that, the scriptures say that we're saved. That that forgiveness and that cleansing becomes real for us. But it's also something we must continue to walk in every day. Not to maintain our salvation, but to continue to experience the joy of it and what God is doing in our lives. God speaks and he speaks to broken people like us. And we praise him for it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the joy of being in your word. We thank you that you are a God who reveals himself so that we might know you, so that we might experience forgiveness and grace in your presence. We pray that we would worship you with all of our hearts as people who have been cleansed. And that if, we're, if some of us haven't done that, that at this moment your spirit would move in such a way to convict them of their own sin, their need for a Savior, and that Jesus died paying the penalty for their sin and rose again, that they would experience that forgiveness and cleansing and joy in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.